Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little-known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Remember that song? Sure you do. But did you know it was first sung by a gentleman named Jules Bledsoe, who was very popular in the years before World War II? Here to tell us Jules Bledsoe's remarkable story is former Billboard editor, author, and associate professor of journalism, and, by way of full disclosure, my husband, Robert Darden. Welcome, Robert. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mary. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about Jules Bledsoe and that oh-so-very-familiar song? Well, what you've been hearing is Jules Bledsoe singing Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein's Immortal Old Man River from the groundbreaking Broadway musical Showboat. This particular recording, by the way, is from 1931 from the original English cast, and he's accompanied by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. But it was Bledsoe who originated this role, rather than the better-known Paul Robeson, who would later sing the song in the movie version. So, who was Jules Bledsoe? Well, unfortunately, Bledsoe is hardly known today, even though he was also the first African-American to sing with a major American opera company. And in his hometown of Waco, Texas, his bust still adorns the lobby of the Hippotrone Theater downtown. And his tombstone... Inscribed with the words, Old Man River, He Just Keeps Rolling, is found in a small local cemetery. Mary Jules Bledsoe was a fascinating, complicated man. Someone who overcame the racism of his era before his death of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 43 in 1943. And among the many treasures of the Texas collection are his papers and letters, a handwritten diary, program notes, even original compositions and photographs of this important, I guess now sadly forgotten, figure in American musical history. So tell us a little bit about his early days, his beginnings. Well, we know that he was born originally named Julius in Waco on December 29 in 1899, the only son of Henry and Jesse Cobb Bledsoe, into a large family of singers and musicians. And it was his aunt, May Ollie Cobb Spilner, who taught him to sing and play piano. And the record says he was singing in church at the age of five. The church, by the way, was New Hope Baptist, founded by his grandfather Stephen Cobb in 1866. And it's said to be the first black preacher ordained following the Civil War. And doesn't that church still exist today? Oh, it does. Still very active and still has a long and illustrious tradition of fine music. So where, where does Jules go from here? Well, apparently his talent was so obvious that a number of people, and this is pretty rare, both white and black, saw to his education, which included a stint at Central Texas Academy, back then a private prep school affiliated with Central Texas College. 
According to Lynette Goggins Geary's wonderful master's thesis on Bledsoe's music, he was admitted early to Bishop College, which you probably know is a historically all-black college in Marshall, Texas, where he continued to study music. And we have a record of his first known public performance in Waco. It occurred on July 1916 when he played an outdoor concert on the Baylor University campus and later in the Auditorium Theater, which is a pretty remarkable feat when you think about it during that era of segregation. Absolutely. Well, after graduation, Bledsoe became affiliated with the YMCA, and the record shows that he eventually moved to New York, where for a time he enrolled in medical school at Columbia University. He was very close to his mother, though, and when she died in 1920, he returned to music and joined the cast of the popular all-black musical review, Shuffling Along, along with the legendary U.B. Blake and Noble Sissel in 1921. Shuffling Long was a smash hit with black and white audiences, and Annie Keeling Randall, a friend of the Bledsoe family, later said that Jules was actually discovered by the legendary pianist Blake, who had often played the USO shows in Waco. Well, did he did he ever return to his medical studies, or did he just give all that up and go to the stage full time? As far as we know, he was apparently committed to the stage by then. And while in New York, Bledsoe was accepted as a student by the famed Luigi Parasotti for two and a half years. Well, this is kind of interesting. Parasotti would only allow him to hum for the first six months of their lessons. He then studied with Welsh singer Clara Novello Davies and Lazar Samilov before making his official New York debut on Easter Sunday, April 20, 1924. One neat thing is that the program for this event still survives in the Texas collection, and it includes a really challenging, demanding program of pieces like Schubert and Dvorak and Elgar, along with a series of arranged spirituals. The reviews, some of which survived, were exceptional, and he gained his first manager, the famous New York impresario Saul Hurok. Well, with a famous New York manager, opportunities must have increased for him, so what did he do? What, what did he begin to do next? Well, a number of well-received programs followed, along with more popular concerts. He took the role of Abraham in Paul Green's Pulitzer Prize-winning drama In Abraham's Bosom in 1927. Do we know how um, Bledsoe came to the attention of Jerome Kerm and Oscar Hammerstein II? Well, it appears that it happened during a performance in 1926 of the spiritual Deep River and the opera by the same name in New York City. And that's apparently what led him to Kern and Hammerstein. Now, you probably know this story, Mary. The two legendary composers had conceived a showboat after reading Edna Ferber's novel by the same name. And unlike previous musicals, they wanted something where the songs are actually integrated into the story's narrative, which is pretty rare for that time. They wanted something sympathetic for African Americans, which sure. was extremely rare. And Waco and Jules Bledsoe was cast in the pivotal role of Joe, you know, the black everyman who sang the musical's defining song. Wow. And so where did this go? Well, it apparently does the Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia route before ending up on Broadway in December 27, 1927. And every record shows that it was a smash. It ran for like two years nonstop. And as for the novelist Ferber, the first time she heard Bledsoe sing Old Man River, she once wrote, quote, I give you my word, my hair stood on end. The tears came to my eyes, and I breathed like a heroine in a melodrama. I know how she felt. <laughs> I felt the same way when I heard that song. It's amazing. 
Well, Showboat, as you might guess, made Bledsoe's career. Although much of America, North and South, was pretty racist at the time, and it would be a pretty rocky career in the days to come. Following the success of Showboat, Bledsoe made a couple what we call soundies now in 1929, seven-minute musical clips. I guess they're kind of like videos that used to be shown on MTV, <laughs> including On the Levee, Old Man Trouble, and Dear O Southland, which featured new lyrics to the spiritual deep river. These soundies were long thought lost, but On the Levee and Old Man Trouble recently surfaced in Australia, of all places, and will be released as part of a package of a number of long-lost soundies on DVD in 2010 by Vocalion. It's interesting how often these types of, of works are more popular overseas than they are. They're not as appreciated often in the United States as they are abroad. Um, what do we know about Jules Bledsoe, the person? Well, that's the downside of all this, not much. His surviving correspondence, and there's a lot of it, is just maddening because it's so one-sided. Most of it consists of copies of letters he or one of his managers wrote soliciting performances or, or letters from creditors demanding money. One aspect of Bledsoe's personality that does come through the letters is that he was just terrible with money. It apparently was just wasn't important to him, and either he didn't have any money or he traveled so much overseas where he was popular, as you mentioned, that some of those bills went unpaid for months on end. To make matters worse, he established a bed and breakfast on a working farm in Massachusetts as a retreat for African Americans. And man, it was really plagued with mismanagement and overdue bills. You know, with a voice like that, though, you would think that a person wouldn't need anything else. They wouldn't have to be good at money. He just needed to sing. Well, he did, and that meant he sang everywhere from one-night stands at local high schools to Broadway, one after the other after the other. And along the way, that's when he became the first African-American to appear in a major operatic production in the United States. He stepped in for the role of Amonstro in Aida in Cleveland, Ohio in 1932. Well, he could sing anything. Well, he could, and he became a favorite in Europe where he played particularly for Dutch and English audiences night after night, so much so, in fact, that he stayed many, many years abroad during tours of Europe. During that time, we have records of him singing with every principal symphony as a soloist. In fact, the, the only country where he didn't perform was in Hitler's Germany, where black artists were outlawed by the Nazis. Mm. Here's my favorite bit of Jules Bledsoe trivia. Share it with us. <laughs> in 1933, <laughs> Billie Holiday made her first record as vocalist for Benny Goodman's studio orchestra, doing the popular song, Your Mother's Son-in-Law. Now, this was written for Lou Leslie's Blackbirds of 1934. And in the song, there is a reference to Jules. It goes, quote, you don't have to sing like Bledsoe, and you can tell the world I said so. <laughs> now, that's pretty famous when they're writing songs about your voice. Well, it is indeed, and it rhymes. Um, his fame didn't land him the role we know uh, in Showboat, the role of Joe. So when was that made into a movie, and um, who was in that movie? Well, when Hollywood finally did get around to filming Showboat in 1936, the producers chose Paul Robeson as Joe. And while there's nothing in Jill's surviving correspondence that addresses that issue directly... Uh, he's got to have been disappointed. My guess is that Roberson was simply the better-known African-American singer, partly because Bledsoe spent so much of his time overseas. And didn't matter, he kept plugging away, doing nightly concerts, big and small. 
Well, it seems so unfair, though. I mean, he was known for this. It just doesn't seem right that someone else got that role. He does become one of the first African Americans to appear on national radio broadcasts back when radio was the undisputed king of entertainment. And he was featured in the radio special, quote, Americans all, immigrants all, broadcast December 18, 1938, over the flagship radio station WABC. I remember WABC. Well, you don't remember this, because this is about 25, 30 years before you were born. But the show included <laughs> Jules' rendition Thank of you. Little Black Boy. Outside of the blatantly racist Amos and Andy, there are just virtually no blacks on radio in those days. Now, there's an intriguing letter in Bledsoe's papers from the NAACP secretary, the very powerful Walter White, to the Ford Sunday Evening Hour, one of the most popular of all radio programs. The letter, dated January 30, 1939, is to Mr. Edsel B. Ford, if you wondered where the name of that show came from, suggesting that the show consider performances by well-known, talented African-American performers, including Marian Anderson, Roland Hayes, Paul Robertson, or Jules Bledsoe. There's another interesting letter, and it's dated January 12, 1940, and it's a request from His Imperial Highness Archduke Franz Joseph of very famous historic <laughs> fame, and Archduchess Martha formally asking to meet Jules backstage after his upcoming concert in New York City's Town Hall. We don't know if they did or not because there's no record what was said or done that particular meeting. Well, I understand that Bledsoe eventually became very good friends with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, that's right, Mary. Bledsoe's 1941 tour of U.S. colleges, both black and white, included a patriotic song he'd written, Ode to America, which was dedicated to President Roosevelt. By now, Jules had become an accomplished composer with a whole number of songs and arranged spirituals to his credit. Apparently, as best we can figure out, the White House got wind of the number and Eleanor Roosevelt was on hand to accept the dedication at the initial broadcast over the NBC network on May 11, 1941. The text of her speech that day still survives in the Texas collection. Can you share a little bit of that with us? Oh, well, I'll quote... I'm very glad to be in the studio and to have heard the magnificent ode, which I'm happy to accept for the president, and I'm only sorry that he cannot be here to, in person to thank Mr. Bledsoe, who has come all the way from California to sing it for the president and me this afternoon. I could not help thinking, as the ode was being sung, how well it expressed the patriotism, which has always lived in the hearts of the Negro people, oppressed often, never perhaps given their rights in this democracy, as yet they have never failed to give this land their devotion and their work. I am happy also to be able to pay a tribute to what they have given to this country. It must have been a great honor to have President Franklin Roosevelt mention uh, mention him in this in this quote. That's Well, he and uh, Eleanor continued to tour together off and on for the next year or so. That's how well they got along. Two weeks later, he takes a break from the tour to be awarded the Dr. The degree of Doctor of Music by his alma mater, Bishop College, in May 23, 1941. Later that summer, Bledsoe was asked to come to Washington to give another performance of his Ode to Freedom to Franklin Roosevelt in person, supported by the wonderful Howard University Glee Club. That must have inspired him. Well, you bet. Energized by that experience, Jules then wrote and dedicated the song, now hang with me here, <laughs> quote, Maybe he's your boy in khaki, Maybe he's your boy in blue, for Eleanor Roosevelt, whom he called first mother of the land and of all mothers, wives and sweethearts of fighting America. Indeed. Well, there's no record of whether he got to sing that for Mrs. Roosevelt in the files. I don't know. 
Maybe it was something about the title or something. Well, she's certainly one of my heroes, too. So Now, it was about that time that Bledsoe moved to Hollywood, right? Well, yeah. He was cast in his first and maybe last motion picture, Drums of the Congo, in 1942, a very low-budget B-film for Universal. His initial letters home to his sister are very hopeful. Today, though, the movie is most notable for her early appearance by the very beautiful Dorothy Dandridge and its absolutely preposterous plot. Something about of two sets of competing secret agents who are combing Africa's jungles for a, a meteorite that may have secret powers, all the while avoiding territorial native peoples and rampaging wild animals. Meanwhile, Bledsoe was cast as Kalu, a tribal chief, and he gets to sing parts of three Milton Rosen, Everett Carter songs, Round the Bend, River Man, and Hear the Drums Beat Out. It sounds like that movie must have been written by the same author as Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> and it probably got the same kind of reviews. They were mixed at best. Uh, released in July of 1942, a Variety magazine calls the film, quote, a fair programmer of convenient length. 59 minutes, and at least mentions Jules, quote, a native leader who sings portions of songs here and there, but is not featured as a soloist with a spot to himself, is Jules Bledsoe. So what about the critics here? Well, the New York Times are not uh, nice at all. They don't like it, citing, quote, hordes of screaming Hollywood extras trying hard to look like villainous natives and medicine men jitterbugging on the village square like a lot of restive Mickey Rooney's. <laughs> At one point, the story comes to a complete halt while a honey bear and a hyena, of all things, fight it out, prompting one asker, actor to ask, quote, why do we waste so much time watching these animals? <laughs> and the reviewer agrees, mercifully, in that one, Bledsoe didn't mention. Oh, my. Drums of the Congo sounds really awful. Well, the worst thing about the movie was that Blue Jewels somehow breaks a leg during the shooting in December 1941, and it bothers him for a year, and it cost him a couple of really important engagements. Still, in the Texas collection is a piece of fan mail sent to Mrs. N.R. Cobb at A.J. Moore High School in Waco from a fan who said she loved Jules acting and singing and hadn't seen a better film in years. Apparently someone who doesn't get out much. <laughs> Maybe he's not willing to endure any more stereotyped roles. So shortly thereafter, he signs with Rudy Valley's talent agency, one of the big hitters in those days, in October of 1942 for motion pictures, radio and stage, but not, by the way, for concerts. So what happened for the rest of the, the decade? Well, he's just relentless. He's singing dozens, I don't know, maybe hundreds of charity concerts. His stamina is such that at one stretch, we can document from April to May of 1940, for instance, he performs 21 full concerts including concerts for organizations such as United Spanish Veterans, the National Negro Congress in Detroit, Finnish Relief, Red Cross Refugee Relief, and a number of concerts for relief efforts in his beloved Netherlands and England. He also co-organized a grand opera caravan, the Bledsoe Grand Opera Company, to present musical version of Emperor Jones together with the Negro Ballet, but we don't know whatever happened with that. That is an exhausting schedule. I mean, even for the strongest voice and the most highly trained person, that must have been overwhelming to perform that much. He he also must have had a really incredible professional repertoire. Oh, he does, Mary. In one folder in the Texas collection, there are copies of Bledsoe's repertoire, which was sent by his management to prospective clients. 
His active repertoire apparently consisted of four 9 by 12 pages, single-spaced, of challenging leader arias, operatic roles, including Tonio from Pagliacci, Elijah from Elijah, and even Boris Gudunov as the title role, along with French songs, Spanish songs, American and English songs, and a number of original compositions. Also featured are several of his own arrangements of beloved spirituals, including Steal Away, Go Down Moses, and Climbing Jacob's Ladder. There are also several newspaper clippings from the Texas leg of one of Bledsoe's tours, this one in the spring of 1941. The newspapers that otherwise were routinely given to segregationist language at best praised Bledsoe's concerts in really effusive language. For instance, on April 8, 1941, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram writes, quote, He rates as a distributor of the gift of music, capitalized. For those who love music, recognize it for what it is, wherever found. Well, I think we all need to know that whether or not he came back to the South and performed in his hometown of Waco. Yep. The Waco Sunday Tribune Herald on February 23, 1941, trumpeted Bledsoe's upcoming March 13 concert, noting that while he had toured with Showboat in Europe and Hitler's fascist Germany never allowed him to sing, you know, there's probably more than a little irony here that the writer apparently missed the fact that because African Americans at the at that time were still banned from restaurants, hotels, and most venues, unable to vote, assemble freely, or even participate in the most fundamental freedoms accorded to Americans, and would remain excluded for another 25 years, he still mentioned he couldn't sing in fascist Germany. Hmm. As for Bledsoe, he bravely included a section called, quote, Songs of Freedom and Hope. And in the program notes, he has this to say, quote, They are dedicated to the victims of racial, religious, and political persecution, through whose suffering we in America have again been made conscious of the true meaning of freedom and democracy. Pretty brave words. Indeed. And tell us about his last concert. Well, this was apparently for British war relief, and it was for a mixed audience of about 2,500 people who demanded repeated encores. Afterwards, a paper said he received his friends and family at the house of his aunt, Naomi Cobb, at 817 North 4th Street. Incidentally, the paper noted that both white and colored friends were welcome in the language of the day. And in the summer of 1943, Bledsoe embarked on yet another overly ambitious tour selling war bonds for the same government that wouldn't allow him to vote in Texas, often appearing with his friend Eleanor Roosevelt. So I know we're approaching the end here. What finally happened? Well, by all accounts, he was just exhausted. And he goes to his manager's house on July 14 in Hollywood. And at age 43, he dies of what's said to be a cerebral hemorrhage. His death was front-page story in the July 15, 1943 edition of the California Eagle, Los Angeles' largest African-American newspaper. And his body was returned to Waco for a funeral service, and his memorial service was also front-page news of the Waco News Tribune on July 21, 1943. Mm, so sad. Well, it was held at his beloved Second Baptist Church and had an amazing 1,800 mourners, both black and white. And the church was filled to overflowing. This was the church member his grandfather had founded and where he had sung. Throngs of people are said to have stood outside the doors and windows to listen including a number of friends who'd come from the Netherlands, by the way. And the eulogies were delivered by Dr. A.J. Armstrong of Baylor, 
Dr. J.J. Rhodes of Bishop College, and Dr. J. Newton Jenkins, pastor then of New Hope. Well, that's By the quite, way, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that's quite a list of dignitaries. It is, and particularly during wartime to travel. That was a big deal. He never married. You know, Lynette Gary's thesis says that Bledsoe once began a biography, starting writing in pencil in his flowery, almost unreadable handwriting on a small tablet. And she notes that at one point he had this to say, quote, In order not to pass out of this world forgotten in a few years like the vegetable that is plucked and forgotten after consumption, do some unselfish good. Touch and influence some young budding life for good, as you are using life on borrowed time, and posterity will bless your name and your memory, and you will not have lived in vain. You will have a place in the hearts of men of succeeding generations. It does not take genius or fame or fortune to touch a young, growing life. All it requires is a good heart and a kindly spirit. It is such a shame that Jules Bledsoe isn't better known today. Oh, I absolutely agree. But he's just nearly forgotten. Though he had so much talent, and the talent to touch, as he writes, quote, the hearts of succeeding generations. His modest tombstone is in a small, out-of-the-way cemetery in East Waco. Only a couple of recordings of his rolling baritone survived the decades. And the Texas collections boxes of his papers only hint at the power and perseverance of the man who defied Jim Crow's official and unofficial laws to carve a legacy for himself. But I think each time Showboat is performed, each time the song Old Man River, that mournful litany of the sins of racism, is sung, I think that Jules Bledsoe lives on. And you know, Mary, that's not a bad legacy for any of us. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. It's been my pleasure. We will close the show today with more of Jules Bledsoe singing Old Man River. There's an old man called the Mississippi That's the old man that I want to be What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Don't look up and don't look down He don't dare make the white folks frown Bend your knee and bow your head And pull them ropes until you're dead Let me go away from the Mississippi Let me go away from the white man ball You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University.